Welcome to Nonstop Politics Live. I'm your host, Dash Leslie, and I'm recording this episode at Galaxy Radio Studios here in Leicester. And we are here as part of Galaxy Radio's 69-hour marathon, all in aid of Anthony Nolan. More details on what they do and the incredible work and research that they do will be available in the show notes for this podcast a bit later on. But what a week it's been in the world of politics and news. So much to talk about. We'll be talking about the coronavirus in a little bit and the impact that's had on business. Flybe has gone down earlier this week. We'll talk a bit more about that later on. But first, of course, we've got to talk about the US presidential race because last week it was Super Tuesday. And after the event, I, haven't, didn't, make, I didn't make a podcast on this initially straight after the event because uh, the time and lots of other things going on. But I've written down my key thoughts on my whiteboard I took a picture of it and I've got all of the thoughts in front of me on my whiteboard so I'm now going to basically riff about Super Tuesday for the next half hour or so Uh, and if you have any questions that you want to ask me um, they will be in the chat box, you can ask them in the chat box Um, but I'm going to riff about Super Tuesday for the next half hour which should be very exciting and maybe boring for some people but this should be interesting so the first key thing that I wrote down on my whiteboard after Super Tuesday was the Biden surge in the South, which is quite extraordinary. So just as a recap um, as to why this is so significant, we had the first two contests about a month ago, Iowa and New Hampshire. And in Iowa and New Hampshire, as as I've said before, population of those states was mostly white, 90% white. And Biden didn't do very well. He came fourth in Iowa and he came fifth in New Hampshire. And obviously this led to a lot of concerns amongst some uh, politicos that Biden's campaign was collapsing because he hasn't been able to gain momentum from those two states. Um, But at the time, in the episode that I recorded, I said that, hold on, you should hold on, you should wait for a state like South Carolina to come along, which is a lot more diverse, and it's somewhere that Biden will be able to do much better. And lo and behold, uh, Biden came second in the Nevada caucuses, which had a lot more diverse population. Bernie Sanders did win it by a landslide, but um, that was due to Latino voters, which is also very important. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Biden was able to come second, and then in South Carolina, the big, big, big victory that he had there has reset the race, and he won that race by almost, he won nearly 50% of the vote in South Carolina, which is extraordinary, and just goes to show how important it is to take into account the views of a diverse population. The winner of the Iowa caucus, as you remember, was Pete Buttigieg, and he ended up dropping out of the race before Super Tuesday. Um, So did Amy Klobuchar, who uh, came third in New Hampshire. She had a lot of momentum going forward into Nevada, but she ended up dropping out as well because because both of those candidates couldn't increase their support with African-American and Latino voters. This is where the Biden surge comes in. So So South Carolina happens. A very powerful congressman in South Carolina, Jim Clyburn, endorses Joe Biden. Next thing you know, three days later, Super Tuesday, you have a bunch of states, 14 states, voting in this Democratic primary. It's essentially a national primary for all intents and purposes. You have a lot of states from east to west who are casting their votes. And Joe Biden ended up winning, I think, nine or ten states on Super Tuesday. But the interesting, really, really... Uh, important states, the ones where Biden was able to have a massive surge with African-American voters because they are really who has changed the dynamics of this race and cemented Biden's position now as a front-runner. So 
States like Virginia, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and Alabama were key to Biden increasing his delegate count. Delegates are, of course, the uh, the people. They're li- they are actually people, the literal people. But the number of them that will go to the convention in the summer to then nominate the uh, candidate eventually with the most delegates. And so, in watching the coverage on the night, I was up until about half past two watching Super Tuesday coverage. So the polls closed in Virginia at midnight on the dot. And at midnight, the race was called in Virginia immediately for Joe Biden. And what that suggests to you is that if a race is called as, as soon as the polls close, it means it's going to be absolutely a humongous victory for that candidate, without question. Because if the network and if the Associated Press can be so confident that the result's going to go one way, they will call it at the, at so, as soon as poll closed. So poll closed, polls closed at midnight in Virginia. Um, the race was called for Biden. That immediately tells me it's going to be a big night for Joe Biden. North Carolina polls closed, I think, half an hour later. Joe Biden wins North Carolina again. Oklahoma, Alabama, states like this. And the exit poll data that came out of these states is just absolutely extraordinary. Biden's winning these states with the African-American vote. He's winning like 50, 60, 70% of the African-American vote. So the narrative that somehow Biden's campaign is collapsing turned out to be complete nonsense because the votes, the the thoughts of African-Americans have not been taken into account. And as a result, you're now seeing this surge which has propelled Biden to the front-running status. So the South was very, very interesting on Super Tuesday. That's something that we're going to see replicated, I think, next week on Tuesday in the Mississippi, where there'll be a Democratic primary there, along with five other states, which Bernie Sanders is probably going to do quite well in those five others. But Mississippi is going to be a Biden blowout, almost certainly. And then again, in two weeks' time, on the 24th of March, which happens to be my birthday as well, uh, the Georgia primary will be taking place. And that is also going to be, most likely, a Biden blowout. Um, uh, I've got family who live in Georgia, and I can tell you now they will be voting for Joe Biden. I haven't, I haven't spoken to them about it, but I can tell you now that most likely they will be voting for Joe Biden, and so will many other voters in that state because of just how the demographics work and where Biden's core support is there. So that's where the Biden surges come from. It's also worth talking about Bernie Sanders because he didn't have the best night on Super Tuesday. It looks like he's going to win California. The votes are still being tallied up. The delegates still being awarded. 415 up for grabs. Uh, But I think it seems like Bernie didn't have the best night that he could have had on Super Tuesday because quite a few of the states that I've already mentioned, Virginia and North Carolina especially, polls are being done in the days up to the South Carolina primaries or before Biden's big uh, victory in South Carolina. Polls are being done which showed Bernie Sanders leading in states like Virginia and North Carolina. Turns out it was actually Joe Biden that ended up winning them. And one of the reasons for this is, of course, his outreach to minority voters hasn't been as strong. Well, his outreach to African Americans hasn't been so strong. His outreach to Latino voters has been much stronger. And that played out in in California, it seems. He's going to have a very big win in California. Big surprise, though, was that Bernie Sanders lost Texas, which many expected him to win again with the Latino population. And that's something I'm going to talk about a little in a little bit more detail because it's important to remember that as as people like myself and as pundits talk about groups such as the black vote or the Latino vote, Hispanic vote, it's important to remember that these voters are not a monolith. They don't all vote the same way. Not all black voters think the same way. Not all Hispanic voters think the same way. And I think this is, you're going to see an example of this play out in the Florida primary, which is on the 17th of March. So 
you remember that in the debates a few weeks ago, um, comments that Bernie Sanders had made previously about Fidel Castro, the former leader of Cuba, the former dictator of Cuba. For, um, there were comments that he made about Fidel Castro's literacy program, and he essentially was defending this program. Now, it's interesting because the demographics of the Latino population across the US is very, very different. So, you know, maybe those comments would wash with voters in Nevada. Those comments didn't come out um, the time of the Nevada caucuses, but his support among Latino voters was just absolutely ridiculous. He blew out the water um, against Joe Biden there. He's going to win big in California, and maybe, maybe those comments will wash with voters in California, but I can absolutely guarantee you right now those comments will not wash with Hispanic voters in Southern Florida for obvious reasons. So it's going to be interesting. The Latino vote in the west of the country, probably more favorable to Bernie. Policies that Bernie Sanders is talking about, such as free university tuition, um, immigration policy, very, very appealing to voters over there. But in Florida, it's a completely different story. Uh, the demographic there, most, um, you know, you've got um, people who fled Cuba, settling in Florida, tend to be more socially conservative, fiscally conservative, a lot of entrepreneurs in that area. So you're going to see a very different result in Florida. Biden's going to win Florida big time. And getting ahead to the general election quickly, I think this is one of the reasons why the Democrats fear Bernie Sanders so much. Because in a general election scenario, Joe Biden puts Florida in play, as well as a state like Pennsylvania up in the, up in the Rust Belt. Whereas Bernie Sanders, if he's a nominee, you can say goodbye to Florida, pretty much. Um, there is not a chance in hell Bernie Sanders wins Florida in a general election. So that's why you're seeing hesitancy from the Democratic, um, Democratic the, the Democrats as a whole against Bernie Sanders, and that could be one reason why a state like Florida, which is so pivotal with its 29 electoral college votes in the general election. So that's an, that's an argument there as for why some Democrats might not want Bernie. Having said that, Bernie does have a lot of support with young people, um, and he has a lot of support with Hispanic voters in certain states too. So we will just have to see, in terms of Bernie Sanders, how that plays out. What I will say for him, though, is that it's going to be an uphill fight. That's just the reality. The map um, going forward, as I've said, with Florida, states like Florida, states like Georgia, where the delegates are in terms of who will end up with more delegates. Um, Michigan is a state that votes on Tuesday. It's, it's widely seen as a must-win. It's going to have the most number of delegates up for grabs that night. Uh, Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton lost to Bernie Sanders in Michigan in 2016. Uh, Joe Biden looked like he could pull it off, but we just don't know. So we'll have to see how that pans out. But um, one of the interesting things that Bernie Sanders has also been talking about is this so-called democratic establishment, which is trying to um, stage a coup against his candidacy, his candidacy. So South Carolina happens, Bernie, uh, Joe Biden wins it big. Next thing you know, you have a slew of the moderate candidates fall into line, fall into place behind Joe Biden. Now, you remember that I did say in a podcast just before South Carolina took, took place that there was no, in fact, it was the podcast after South Carolina, actually. I recorded the podcast after South Carolina, and I did say Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Amy Klobuchar, uh, senator from Minnesota, and Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, all three of them should drop out. Um, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar are in the moderate wing. Those two drop out of the race after South Carolina. And then you have uh, 
And then you have Beto O'Rourke, who you remember from the Texas um, Senate race in 2018. Three of them fall into line behind Biden. Next thing you know, Biden cleans up on Super Tuesday. Mike Bloomberg, who spent half a billion dollars running for president, loses big time on Super Tuesday. He won, he won uh, American Samoa. He won five delegates, but nothing to make his candidacy tenable going forward. He drops out of the race after Super Tuesday. Then on top of that, he endorses Joe Biden too. So that's more support going to Biden. At the same time, Elizabeth Warren keeps it going in the race for a limited amount of time, but then she realizes there really is no path. She drops out too, which is quite something. And she hasn't even endorsed a candidate yet, which is very interesting because um, the thing about Elizabeth Warren is that, and this is she's a very interesting person to talk about actually. Um, I'll talk about let's talk about Elizabeth Warren actually for a little bit. Elizabeth Warren, um, in my opinion, was definitely one of the more qualified of the candidates who ran. Um, she had the best message, best campaign pitch, best elevator pitch, as I like to call it introducing herself to voters with her plans she is she had a plan for everything but somehow she just didn't register interesting how we're on international women's day and there are no more female candidates viable female candidates in the race there's one more woman in the race but there's no point talking about her she's going to lose no one cares but warren someone who's campaigned for decades for fiscal rights especially after the financial crash she didn't really register in the end um but i think that Despite the fact that she didn't register, I do think there are some areas where she did make some missteps. Uh, so after Iowa and New Hampshire, she came, she became well behind in those two states. And I said at the time after the Iowa, after the New Hampshire primary, that she should have dropped out of the race because there was no chance that she would be able to beat Bernie Sanders anywhere else if she couldn't beat him on their collective home turf because New Hampshire is the neighboring state to Vermont, where Bernie Sanders is from. And it's also the neighboring state to Massachusetts, where Elizabeth Warren's from. And New Hampshire, and in New Hampshire, Bernie Sanders won it. Warren came, I think, fourth or fifth. She came fourth in New, in, in New Hampshire. So I think so. I thought at that point, the writing's on the wall. It's done. There's no chance she has at winning this thing at all. But she carries on. And on the debate stage, this is a really interesting thing. On the debate stage, she absolutely destroyed Michael Bloomberg to pieces. Because, of course, the controversy happened about Michael Bloomberg with the uh, comments he's made about women in the workplace and non-disclosure agreements that he's made women sign. That was all very, very controversial. And so Elizabeth Warren on the debate stage took Michael Bloomberg to shreds. If you see the clips online, it's absolutely devastating and basically ended Michael Bloomberg's campaign and stunted any growth that he was having at the time. The problem is for Elizabeth Warren that whilst she was doing something very admirable by going after Michael Bloomberg, it was a catastrophic and strategic error on her part because if you look at the results of the first two contests, Iowa and New Hampshire, the problem that Elizabeth Warren had was not Michael Bloomberg. The problem that Elizabeth Warren had was Bernie Sanders because remember, she's in the same progressive wing as Bernie Sanders to the left of centre, actually to quite far, quite far to the left of centre. Elizabeth Warren is a bit more to the right of Bernie Sanders. She's a capitalist, whereas Bernie Sanders is an unavast socialist. But Bernie and Warren were fighting for the same pool of voters. And it turns out that Bernie, after the victory in New Hampshire, was the progressive king. Warren, staying in the race, 
instead of attacking Bernie Sanders and going after him, she could have done both. She could have walked into chewed gum at the same time. She could have uh, gone after Bloomberg and gone after Sanders at the same time. But instead she chose to go all in on Bloomberg. And whilst it, it brought Bloomberg down big time, it also brought her down at the same time because she didn't attack Bernie. And she allowed Bernie to remain unscathed. He made those comments about Fidel Castro and that may put up some voters in the future, but basically she allowed him to go on skate and as a result she brought herself down by not attacking him and all that support stayed with Bernie Sanders and she did not reap the benefits. Com couple that with a lack of support among minority voters and the writing was on the wall basically. So having said that, Warren is a candidate top-notch and I think that it's funny how many Americans I've seen in some of the polling say that they would vote for a woman, but they don't think someone else would vote for a woman, and so they're not going to vote for her in the first place. Fascinating how also a lot of people said that Warren wouldn't be able to hold her own against Donald Trump, when actually I think, if you look at how she, took, she tackled Michael Bloomberg and absolutely destroyed him, do you think that there was a possibility that she could have done the same to Donald Trump in the general election matchup? We will never know, but uh, that was something, that was certainly food for thought there. Right, what else is on my whiteboard to talk about? Uh, let's talk about turnout. Bernie Sanders' theory of the case has been that he can increase turnout and he can bring new voters into the electorate, which so far has actually turned out to be not true. And in fact, the opposite is true. What it turns out is that it's actually Biden who is turning out the vote. If you take Virginia, for example, the primary turnout in Virginia in 2016 was around 700,000. Compare that to this time around, it was well over a million. And that was mostly driven again, as I keep saying, by African-American voters turning out in their droves to support the former vice president. And so Bernie's argument is not really washing because he is failing to bring out younger new voters to vote for him. It's just not happening. All the momentum at the moment is with Biden. And so it is very, very interesting to see how Biden is now stealing the initiative and is now the front runner in this thing. Bernie still has got a chance, but as I said earlier, it's going to be very, very difficult um, for him to succeed going forward. So we will have to wait and see how the rest of this election plays out. I'll have a lot more uh, updates on the US presidential race as the contests progress, it is going to be very, very fascinating to see how the map plays a role in this thing. A lot of people said before, momentum would, would be key in this race. Pete Buttigieg won the Iowa caucuses, just, and then came second in New Hampshire. How, how much momentum did that do for him? Not very much. Why? Because he ended up dropping out after South Carolina, because, as I predicted, he didn't get enough support from African Americans, and that was his downfall. Biden managed to win South Carolina, and now that is essentially the reset for his campaign, which is quite extraordinary. So let's see how this race plays out going forward, but certainly an interesting contest to watch. Right, let's move on to talk about coronavirus because this has been a very, very big, big story over the last week. Um, a lot of panic buying, a lot of uh, government measures being announced, a lot of precautions being advised that people should take. So my initial thoughts on this really are that I think for the most part, 
we need to listen to the um, advice and we need to listen to the science because the fact is that there's only so much that we as individuals can do to stop the spread of this thing and there's quite a lot there's there is and there is a quite a bit of stuff that we can do so simple things washing our hands for 20 seconds to god save the queen or happy birthday that is what that is the basic thing we can do using hand gel if you can find it because of course supermarkets are now running out of supplies which is pretty ridiculous um supermarkets are actually now stop um they're now preventing people from uh, uh, from panic buying, they're rationing items such as hand gel, they're rationing hand soap, even toilet paper. There was a case in Australia where I think there were two women fighting over toilet paper in a Sydney store. Let me have a look at this. Two people were fighting over toilet roll in Australia and I think they've actually now been charged. Two women, let's have a look. So according to Sky News, Two women have been charged after a toilet paper brawl in Sydney. The pair, aged 23 and 60 from the Bankstown area of Sydney, have been issued court attendance notices for a fray and are due before Bankstown local court on the 28th of April. Officers were called to a store in Chalora in the southwest of Sydney on Saturday morning following reports of a group of women arguing and fighting in the aisle over a pack of toilet roll. I mean, this is just absolutely extraordinary. How has this been allowed to happen? Surely people should use their common sense and realize, okay, guys, this is serious. It's spreading across the world, but it does not require crazy panic buying. I do think the government does have this under control pretty well. And I think part of the reason for that is because they have to follow the science here. Um, so what I do think is that the government will be taking extra steps. They're planning legislation um, as we speak, which could involve isolating towns, it could involve limiting travel. We'll have to find out what the details are, but so far, the Chancellor has promised £46 million in the fight against the coronavirus, which will include funds towards the development of a vaccine and a new rapid test for the disease. That's according to BBC News. So at the moment, we just have to carry on as usual, but just being extra hygienic. I think it's interesting how we just have to carry on and you know prepare for the worst for one thing but at the same time carry on as normal you know i've got travel plans over the next couple of weeks i'll be traveling to london i'm going to be getting on a train i'll be walking through an international train terminal does that put me at risk you know if i fly anywhere i'm flying to um i'm flying to scotland at the end of april does that put me at risk um you know getting on a plane jumping going to a different city walking around a city for several hours does that going to put me at risk? What is, you know, you know, all these things we're going to have to consider. Do we isolate certain towns? Do we keep people, um, uh, you know, you know, uh, locked in a, in, in a city? You know, it's going to be interesting to see how the government responds to this. But just a quick reminder, the symptoms of coronavirus. So it's normally flu-like symptoms, really. Headache, cough, muscle pain, fever and, and tiredness and shortness of breath. Key thing here is, though, that in most cases, um, you're likely to just make a full recovery. And I think I've heard on the TV some doctors and uh, TV doctors, such as Dr. Hillary on Good Morning Britain, saying that if you catch coronavirus once, you should be, you should be immune in the future. Um, obviously, we haven't had any scientific research done on that, but that's a doctor's opinion, so we've got to go with it. And overall, for coronavirus, it's the same thing, really. Hand washing, 
catching coughs and sneezes in tissues and all that stuff. But one of the questions that BBC News asks on their website is, should we expect a coronavirus budget? Now, there, as I said, there will be £46 million plugged into the fight. And the Chancellor himself, Rishi Sunak, has told Andrew Marr that the government is looking at a range of scenarios to make sure that it's well prepared for them, and that the NHS would get all the support it needs. Now, you'll, be, you'll, you'll have heard, I think, in the news lately that the government has been trying to delay the outbreak of coronavirus to the summer because this would mean that the outbreak would not put as much pressure on the National Health Service um, as, as it would do in the winter, of course, because you've got a lot of winter flu patients and things like that. But, of course, we don't know if the virus will actually be as active in the summer. Will it be as deadly... Uh, or as prevalent in the summer months as it is now once it warms up. That's something we're going to have to wait and see for as well. But you know, with coronavirus, it's having a lot of impacts, not just on people's health, but also on business too. Because the really bad news about the coronavirus now is that Flybe has collapsed, which is really, really sad. Um, Now, of course, Flybe was in trouble from long before the coronavirus outbreak. Flybee was only bailed out, I think, in January. Only in January they were bailed out out by the government because they've been struggling in recent years. But now they have collapsed. So let's let's have a bit of background on this. So it's an Exeter-based airline. They were bought a year ago by the consortium which was headed by Virgin Atlantic. This is according to to The Independent. And you remember, actually, and I think... On Flybe's website, it did mention something about Flybe being rebranded to Virgin Connect. So they were going to go under go under a bit of a rebrand uh, to try and reverse their fortunes. They were sport, they were, they, and the owners put in a hundred million pounds to keep them afloat. But with the economic effects of coronavirus, that's really tipped them over the edge. So two thousand three hundred staff are now facing. Uh, are now, are, well, 2,300 staff have now been made redundant, pretty much, and you've got thousands of passengers, hundreds of thousands of passengers, with their travel plans up in the air. And the announcement was made after 3 in the morning, so you'll have a lot of cabin crew getting ready for their day, or coming back from uh, various destinations, passengers heading to the airport for early morning flights. All of that got cancelled on the morning that Flyby went down, and people were told not to go to the airport. Now, 16 routes, thankfully, have been bought by the Scottish regional airline, Logan Air. So at least there'll be some temporary relief for those people. Those routes will be starting in the next couple of weeks, which is really, really good of Logan Air to do. But you know, with Flybe going down, it makes you wonder, will there be any more airlines that follow suit in collapsing because of coronavirus? Of course, the big, other thing about coronavirus in the last couple in the last uh, half in the last few hours or so, northern Italy. I mean, this is a pretty pretty extraordinary step that's been taken. Sixteen million people in northern Italy, in the region of Lombardy, and fourteen other central and northern provinces, have been essentially placed under lockdown because of the situation getting even worse. And this lockdown will now last until at least the 3rd of April, so about three weeks of lockdown. 
The Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, also announced the closure of schools, gyms, museums, nightclubs and other venues across the country. This is according to BBC News. Which, and by the way, 16 million is a quarter of the, Itali of the entire Italian population. And it includes the richest city, Milan, which is absolutely extraordinary. So, it is true. Some people will say, look, this is a very, very draconian measure. Very, very unnecessary. Everyone's going to catch it anyway, so there's no point. Um, there's no point doing this. But you know what? It's a very, very big deal. If you look at China, China has taken even more drastic measures. And actually, the, the death toll in China is falling quite a lot. They've had the lowest increase, the lowest single-day increase in the coronavirus uh, yesterday with only 43 cases. So maybe this is the kind of measure that is needed in a place like Italy where there's so many cases. So far, cases jumped yesterday by more than 1,200. So there are now 5,000, nearly, no, nearly 6,000 cases in Italy as of yesterday, which is extraordinary. The death toll has passed 230, 36 of those in the last 24 hours alone. And their health system is also under strain as well. So what do these new measures include? Well, according to BBC News, people are not supposed to be able to enter or leave the Lombardy region of northern Italy, Milan being the main city. No movement in or out of the areas, or even within them, unless for proven work-related reasons. And this has been dubbed a national emergency on their behalf. And I saw a tweet by the BBC's policy editor, Lewis Goodall, who I think is a really, really good source of wisdom. And he has basically tweeted this. Listen to this. Tell me what you think of this. I wonder what your reaction to this would be. Two months ago, barely anyone had heard of coronavirus. Today, the richest part of Italy is on lockdown. Often, the modern world and the way we live appears so eternal and immutable. Perhaps the most disturbing thing about the outbreak is the reminder that they might not be so. Very, very interesting. Quite a poignant and quite a, quite a little bit of food for thought there. How immune are we how immune is western society to all of these problems you know we talk about problems all over the world we talk about china it feels so distant all these problems we talk about refugee crisis all the way in the middle east things that seem so distant but actually italy is for all intents and purposes on our doorstep pretty much the world's italy's richest city milan under lockdown just like that how extraordinary is is is, is something like that so it definitely is something to, to something to consider because um, it's a big deal. It is very serious, but like I said before, you know, we just need to make sure that we all do our bit to um, to tackle this virus. And if we can do that, then I think all in all, we should be able to cope very well with this. What else is happening in the news? Let's talk about the Liberal Democrats. Leila Moran who is the MP for Oxford West and Abington, she has announced this morning that she will be a candidate for leader of the Liberal Democrats. Now, let's take a step back. Let's, let's rewind about three months to the 12th of December in the general election campaign. The Liberal Democrats got absolutely devastated in that election, so much so that the leader of the party, Joe Swinson, even lost her own seat how embarrassing and how devastating for her that was and of course the main reason for that was the fact that 
the Lib Dems advocated for the re for revoking Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, which would have stopped Brexit, basically. So now, Leila Moran's come forward and said that her party faces an existential challenge and needs to focus on a positive vision for the United Kingdom. As I said, Jo Swinson had to resign when she lost her seat and the Lib Dems dropped to just 11 seats. And in terms of the contest, nominations will open on the 11th of May. That's according to BBC News. So what's Leila Moran's message? What is she talking about? Um, what is her vision? She said that people want to have a positive vision, vision for the UK and her priorities include um, opportunity, education and climate change. Very big issues for the Liberal Democrats. And she's currently the Lib Dem spokesperson for education and has only been an MP since 2017, which is very interesting. Nominations for the contest will close at the end of May. The ballot opens will the ballot will open in June and it will conclude on the 15th of July, which should be very very interesting to see how that race uh, pans out in Lib with the Liberal Democrats. One more quick word on uh, British politics: the Labour leadership contest. We're now in the voting stage of the contest. I haven't covered it for about a month or two now. But we have the final three, Lisa Nandy, Keir Starmer and Rebecca Long-Bailey. Uh, members are now voting for their leader using proportional representation. It's a ranked preferential voting system. And in less than a month, we will know who the new leader of the Labour Party is, which should be very, very interesting to see how they take the party forward and how they provide an effective opposition over the next four years to the government. Boris Johnson has visited flood-hit area of Worcestershire, according to Sky News. The Prime Minister arrived on the banks of the River Severn on Sunday and was taken to, the, to, and was taken to view the still-erected flood defences by the Environment Agency staff. This is in Worcestershire. Only now the Prime Minister has decided to visit the flood-hit zones. Interesting how in the weeks before, when coronavirus wasn't such a big thing, he decided not to go, but now, when coronavirus is a big thing, now he's like, actually I might go now because probably I'll be, I'll be able to evade scrutiny. Interesting tactics there, but at least he's finally visited, which is good news. The final thing for this edition of Nonstop Politics Live. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex are back in the UK. Of course, Harry did an event a couple of weeks ago in Scotland for a climate change conference. Now, Meghan went to a school in Essex um, as part of the International Women's Week. And a cheeky schoolboy actually ended up stealing a kiss with Meghan and told cheering fellow pupils, she's really beautiful, isn't she? Let's see if we can listen to this clip right here. She really is beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> there you have it, she really is beautiful, isn't it? couldn't agree more. The Duchess of Sussex took a trip to Robert Clark Upper School in Dagenham. Ah, that makes sense. That does make sense. And her message to men was, value the women in your lives. And that boy that you heard make that comment was Aka Okoye, 16 years old, and he's head boy of the school. He was on stage introducing her to give his view on why men should be involved in the fight for women's equality, which is a very, very important cause. And then he even greeted Meghan 
with a peck on the cheek too, of course. If I mean, you've got to shoot your shot, haven't you? You know, Megan's not going to be here for much longer, so you have to shoot your shot now while you've got the time. So absolutely, I do not blame him for doing so. And uh, Megan is Megan and Harry will be making their final. I think they've actually made their final appearances as members of, of the royal family. It's permanent members of the royal family, and Megxit will be officially happening on the 31st of March. They'll be no longer using their royal titles, and the Sussex Royal branding will also be no longer allowed to be used, because of course they can't you know, go forward and make profits off the word royal. That wouldn't be very, very ideal. So no more Sussex Royal, no more titles, but hopefully they're happy in their um, new life in Canada, hopefully with Archie too. Personally, I would prefer if they did stay in the UK and continue their work here, but I understand a lot has been said about the abuse that she's been getting in the media and things like that. So absolutely, 100%, I wish them the very best. And hopefully, they have a very, very happy life together in Canada. Thank you for listening to Nonstop Politics Live. If you enjoyed, be sure to give us a follow on Instagram, at Nonstop Politics. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A cheeky schoolboy actually ended up stealing a kiss with Megan and told cheering fellow pupils, she's really beautiful, isn't she? Let's see if we can listen to this clip right here. That's an ad. I'll wait for this ad to finish first. Then I'll play the clip. And then when I edit it, this section will be will have vanished from your podcast feed completely, like magic. The power of live radio. Okay, here we go.